The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Uh, tonight, before we continue, I want to take one, take care of one little piece of housekeeping, and that is to acknowledge that at the beginning of the year, uh, I understand that many of you are looking for a place to worship on Sundays, and I want to invite you to join us here at UPC on Sundays. If things like organ music and robes and liturgies are your type of thing, a more traditional feel, I invite you to come to our morning services. There are three of them. But if you like things like blue jeans and uh, guitars and candles, you want to come to the evening service uh, and, and that will, will set the tone more for you. Uh, this church has been on this block for 102 years. Uh, it's, it is a community of people that have been unceasingly committed to this neighborhood and to loving university students for more than a century. And so I invite you to come and worship with us. It's one of these places that you walk into on a Sunday and, the, you know, you may not, not uh, necessarily find these people here to be the coolest folks in the world when you first come in. But if you want to get a vision for what faithfulness looks like, for running a long race um, and for being a part of a multi-generational community of faith, uh, that isn't to say there aren't any young people here. There's actually a lot. Uh, but uh, you're also going to see a lot of folks that, that have a little bit of experience as well. So come and join us here on a Sunday sometime uh, as well. Uh, I want to now enter into our second week as we look through the final book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, a quick review for those of you that were here and a catch-up for those of you that were not. You see, Revelation, as many people are, are aware, are filled with some of these crazy, go-nuts, fantastic images, and that's the way that most people know Revelation. But ultimately, what it is about is simply Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as Jesus is right now. You see, the word Revelation simply means to unveil or uncover. And in this respect, we talked about looking at Revelation as simply a type of fifth gospel. So it is a book about Jesus intended to show us more clearly who Jesus is. So it's simply about Jesus. And if you're wondering more about university ministries, that's really the first thing that you need to know. Like Revelation, if you're in a core group, it's all about Jesus. If you're going to do something with Greek ministry or freshmen, it's all about Jesus. That's what we're trying to do here. Whether you are seeking to grow as one who has perhaps grown up in the church or maybe been a part of young life, or if you're here continuing your discipleship journey, we think that this is a place uh, for both. So make yourself at home as we continue looking through the final book of the Bible. And so tonight we'll be looking at chapter 2, which is the... It contains these messages to some of these prominent churches uh, throughout the Middle East in the first century. And there's one common theme in these letters that we're going to be looking for. There's one common theme that I think that you will see emerge tonight. And that is a theme of love. A theme of loyalty. A theme of loyalty to a first love. So let me pray for us uh, before we we really get into this tonight. Lord, give us the ears 
to hear what the Spirit has said to the church and what the Spirit is saying to the church. We gather tonight, Lord, because we do want to know. We ask that you might teach us tonight, that we might be moved to commit ourselves more fully to you and to love those around us even more extravagantly. So help us out, Lord, as we come uh, to your word tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, before we continue, it might help to help you to know a little bit about the person writing down some of these fantastic images that we get in this last book of the Bible. Uh, now, when we talk about St. John, the apostle, the author of this whole thing, it might help you to think a little bit about Star Wars. Uh, the, the, great, the great movie trilogy that's now become uh, a six-part, big when I grew up, but as I understand, most of you are familiar with this whole idea of, of Star Wars, the struggle between good and evil, where in Star Wars you have this empire that has all this money and power and control, and then you have this thing that's called the rebellion, that, that in the absence of that money and power and control, they have to tap into their inner Jedi. Now, within this first century version of Star Wars, when we look at John, he's become this prominent figure in what is effectively this little rebellion relative to this big thing called the Roman Empire. As many of you are aware, the Roman Empire is the most powerful empire in, in history. Well, John is part of this little upstart called the Way were called Christians. They were this little minority, but they got the attention of the empire, and the empire's single goal was to try and snuff this thing out. Now, John, becoming a prominent figure, what they decided to do, uh, the empire apparently had pretty good PR, guys, because they, though this empire had killed to this point, from the time Jesus was killed in around A.D. 30 till this time, which is around A.D. 92, 94, somewhere in there. So 60 years, the empire had wiped out about 40,000 Christians. So why didn't they kill John? Why didn't they kill this prominent figure within the church? Well, back to their whole PR guys. They knew that any minority movement where if you create a martyr, that's only going to give that movement more and more momentum. It's going to give them a sense of power. So they said, okay, we don't want to kill this guy because that's going to give them momentum. So we're going to banish him to... Uh, this island called Patmos, which is, a spe- which is essentially a type of first century uh, Alcatraz. And so John finds himself. John, this guy who, who had written the gospel of John, is now separated from his friends. And he's been banished for the rest of his life. The cards are stacked against him, but somehow he remains loyal. He's not this type of fair-weather fan of Jesus, even though everything seems to suggest, you're hosed, bro. He hangs in there with him. Now, speaking of fair-weather fans or not being a fair-weather fan, I am proud to say that I am a UW football season ticket holder. Now, in that, yes, thank you very much. In that, in the time that I have had season tickets, we have had exactly zero winning seasons. Zero. A big fat goose egg, and in fact, one of those seasons was an exceptionally lean 0-12 two years ago. And you can't help at times but wonder, is this worth it? 
Do I continue to spend this money? Do I, do I continue to set aside not only, you see, for me, Husky football isn't just three hours of my Saturday. It's the whole thing. Is this time worth it on a Saturday to sit here and watch us lose again? But hanging in there and continuing to do it is what makes things like this Saturday all the sweeter. But you can't help but wonder. And I wonder if that's what's happening with John now as he's been removed from friends, removed from family, banished to this island. Is he sitting there going, wait a minute. This isn't supposed to happen. Is this all going to be worth it? What am I doing here? Jesus, where are you when I need you most? I thought you won this whole thing. But right now, it feels like we're losing. I just wonder if John is reflecting and thinking about, is this worth it? Don't we have similar questions when we think about following Jesus or if we should follow Jesus? I think we do. Last year, uh, last spring actually, we did this thing called the 206 and the 206, last April, where we set aside some time for, for people to pray and we scheduled 206 hours of prayer right here in area code 206. And I... Uh, and the staff had the opportunity to, we had some journals in there and some paper on the wall, and people wrote down some, some prayers and just some of the longings of their heart. And, and they were these same types of questions that I would imagine John is asking as one exiled to the first century Alcatraz. Prayers that said things like this, Help me trust that it will be okay. I need your strength right now. I need you to fill me. Be my support. Give me something to let me know that it is not in vain. Reassure me. I've gone too long without a sign. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's one of your peers. Another person says, Father, I know you have a plan that involves me, but I don't know what it is or if I'm following your plan. Where am I going, God? Am I headed the right direction? Help me to have faith and to trust you Lord, how has it been so long since I started a relationship with you and yet feel as if I have more doubts than ever before? God, what have I been doing? How has my relationship with you grown so weak? I know I still believe in you, but I just feel so at a loss for what to do with all this. I have so many questions. You see, I think John, as one exiled, is our kindred spirit here. So any image that you have of somebody that would be writing the Bible behind a, a nice desk in a warm room with a, with a candle in some big tower, let that go. It couldn't be further from the truth. This is one encountering intense doubt. So what does God do? What happens? In this season of being banished, at the end of chapter 1 of Revelation, we see that John then experiences the Lord. He hears his voice. He sees him. It even says that, that John felt the Lord's hand on him. Jesus meets him in this moment of chaos. And then gives him a vision. 
that is to be written down and sent to his friends that are back on the mainland. These things that we know as the seven letters to the seven churches, and they were messages to the, to the first century church, but they speak something to us even now. So let's start in on that. Let's take a look at the beginning of chapter 2. It'll be up on the board. Again, uh, if you want to bring your Bibles every week, great. If you would like a Bible and you don't have one, we have them here for free. And a wise man once told me, free is a very good price. So feel free to take us up on that. It says this, beginning at chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. Those seven stars, those are angels. Those seven lampstands, those are code for the churches. That's, this is the way of John trying to get this message out from under the nose of the Roman Empire. He has to use a little bit of code here. It's probably why he gets this vision. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. You're still doing it. You're doing a lot right. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you are a Nicolaitan, I'm just going to say it, it sucks to be you. There. <laughs> I said it. We were all thinking it. Okay, but two things I want to I talk about here as we come out of this first letter. And those things are angels and Ephesus and some of the cities around it. First, angels. Now, there are a lot of, of images that we have out there on what an angel is. Now, some of those visions are really a crossbreeding, as far as I can tell, of angels and fairies. You know, where someone is dressed in white that has wings and a halo. And as I was thinking about this, I recognized that my vision, my understanding of angels was first shaped, I think, by, by cartoons that I would watch. And of course, in that cartoon, there would be some moral dilemma. And you, you'd have a dude with this nice little white figure on his right shoulder going, Hey, you know, talking just like this. Hey, that money isn't yours. It's somebody else's. I think you should just leave it here and walk away. And then, of course, on the dude's other shoulder, you'd have this devil that has like a trident thing like that that's saying, Hey, I think you should take the money. It's yours. Arr. Of course, they always sounded like a pirate, right? <laughs> take the money and run. Now, others perhaps maybe have more sophisticated views of angels that are shaped by the likes of Michelangelo or Da Vinci. But for me, the first thing that I thought of were these images that I have of conscience from cartoons. Now, regardless of what your imagination says angels may look like, what I want you to do is think about angels as messengers. Angels are less about what they look like and, even, in fact, less about themselves. But they are more about a message. 
They want to get, a, in this case, a community's attention for the purposes of saying, let me tell you about you. And in this case, it says, uh, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. So we get this image of John writing a message for the messengers. Daryl Johnson, one of my theological mentors in this manner, notes that angels are like a type that these angels in this story are like a type of guardian angel over each of these churches. And these messages go to specific communities. Now, what these messages effectively do, perhaps you caught this, is hold up a mirror to these communities. This is a message that says, this is who you are. Did you catch that? He started by saying, this is who you are. This is what you're doing really, really well. But this is what you're doing not so well. It's a message that is seeking to get the attention of these communities for the purposes of telling them the truth about who they are. A mirror helps you see and understand what is hard for you to see yourself otherwise. Without a mirror, or perhaps somebody taking a picture, I cannot, I, can, I don't really have an accurate view of myself. But I can step in front of, I, I mean, I have, a, I have an idea of what I look like. But until I step in front of a mirror, it's, it's pretty unclear. It's, a, it's, it's an abstraction. So this is a message that's intended to say, this is who you are. And it's true. They're messages that communicate, look, I need you to see something about yourself. I need you to see something so that you can receive this message. Okay, so enough about these angels as messengers. Now I want to talk about Ephesus and some of the other churches that are around Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, the way you've got to understand this is Ephesus was, is like, kind of like a first century Vegas. Okay, it's... It's this cultural center, it's buzzing, it's filled with hedonism, and it, it honestly, the, the way that I was thinking about this is that it does feature a type of Caesar's palace, okay? This is one of the places where, I know, and to that end, you can't help but think of the hangover, right? And Alan coming up to the door going, is this really Caesar's palace? <laughs> so Ephesus is a wild place. The fourth largest city of, of the empire, and it's this, this cultural and trading center, but it is a place rich for secularism. And it's a place where, as, as, uh, as we think about John, the thing that John wouldn't do that got him banished was he would not worship, he wouldn't worship Caesar. And Ephesus is, is a place where there was, that was primed for Caesar worship. They had these massive temples there. And, and of course it was pulling the people of this city a lot of different directions. Well, as you saw in this letter, the church was actually doing pretty good. They were, they were hanging in there. They were enduring a, a lot of hardships. And this was a very influential church. In fact, this was the church that John was connected to before he got sent to prison. Okay, so think about this. This is the guy that wrote the Gospel of John, and he likely did it in Ephesus. Now, if John wasn't enough of a prominent figure of, of, as kind of a member of this church, another person that was believed to, to have been a part of this community was actually Mary, 
the mother of Jesus. Okay, think about that. Mary, the mother of Jesus, at church, following the resurrection of Jesus, I, I couldn't help but think about, in, in the Christmas pageant, does Mary play herself? For those of you that, that haven't grown up in the church, often if you go to church on Christmas Eve, there's, there's this reenactment of the Christmas story that usually includes like a manger scene, which of course involves Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what would they do for the Christmas pageant when they'd be like, hey Mary, do you want to play yourself this year? You know, or do you want us to go get Sandra Bullock or, you know, Julia Roberts or somebody like that to, to help us out? So a very influential church here, uh, right, right on the coast, uh, that involves some very influential people. Now, this message isn't just, there, there are more messages that go around this whole region, and I want to briefly take a look at what happens, because what you're going to see is that all these churches are located in a condition that we connect to. So we move up to the north a little bit to this church at Smyrna. And and remember, a church is a community of people, and these people have done everything right. They do not receive a rebuke, but they get some encouragement, but it's sobering encouragement. Hear this. This is chapter... Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put, put some of you in prison to the test and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the victor's crown. Now, the warning here is that you as a community are going to become under some intense pressure. Now, the text here suggests that it's spiritual. If you were to look around uh, this encouragement or this, this warning that the angel gives to this community, you will see that Satan is named a couple of times in there. He notes that the devil will test you. Now, theologically, this is an important point. One psychiatrist puts it this way, that Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. As you relate to Christ, you assume significance in the enemy's eyes. You see, Jesus has won the battle. As I said last week, what Revelation is ultimately all about is that Jesus is going to win. That Jesus has won and is going to continue to win. So Satan can't do a a whole bunch to Jesus. But the idea here is Satan can do something to what Jesus loves. And what Jesus loves are Jesus' people, the people of the church. Effectively, Satan is a sore loser. And you can't trust him late in the game because while he can't do anything to Jesus, he is going to try out, try and take out the players that are playing for Jesus. Thus, the encouragement is to keep going. Be faithful. Do not forsake your first love, even though you're going to have a lot of good reasons to forsake that first love. It's going to be hard. The culture that you live in is a tough one to live in. He continues to the church uh, just to the north now, Pergamum. Pergamum was, again, the center of Caesar worship, which is why the angel notes this is a place where he says Satan has his throne. 
Now he compliments them that they did not renounce their faith, even given that fact. But he does note this. The angel says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have, have to hold, you have those who hold to the teachings of those crazy Nicolaitans. Okay. Now, without going into too many details about the Nicolaitans and Balaam, what you need to know is that these are, it's, it's kind of code for groups of people. Like, like if I were translating this, the Nicolaitans are going to be kind of on the same plane as, as like duck fans. They're, they're, they're people that try and pull others towards something that's, that's rather evil, uh, that, that tries to take them away from their first love. They're, and, and effectively, the way that they do that is to, is to, to come to these Christians and say, uh, you know, you can, you can compartmentalize your life. You can also worship this God of nature, or you can also worship this God of fertility. You, they're a danger to the church because they're, they're really subtle in saying, you can do your thing in church, but you can also do this other thing with us. Now, it probably also makes sense to, to stop here and talk about, about this warning with sexual immorality as well, because as we'll see in the, in the letter to the next church, uh, it's brought up once again. Now, this was a big thing with the Nicolaitans and these, these people, these, um, um, the Balaam, is because they had this view of sex that said, uh, that, that basically promoted a type of casual sex. Now, the problem with that is that when, when we think about how we're created and what we believe as, as Christians, what these people in the way believe is that as, as people created by God, we're fully integrated. And there's really no separation between these earthly bodies that we have and, and our souls and how one impacts the other. Well, what the Nicolaitans and others were saying is, is no, you can do this and it doesn't impact you any other way. And so why, why Jesus would speak out so so strongly against this is to say what they are trying to do is divide you. To make you less than integrated. To somehow separate you out. They're trying to get you to forsake the first love. The love that makes you who you are. The love that makes you whole. And do not let the the wholeness of your body and soul be separated. You see, sex is never just sex. It does impact your soul. It's not just a physical act, but one that has implications that go much further. Jesus is interested in wholeness here, so that's why he would speak out so strongly against the Nicolaitans. But isn't this culture, doesn't it sound familiar? Oh, it's just sex. Don't worry about it. Compartmentalize it. It's not a big deal. He continues, Then to the church at Thyatira, 
which is loving. And it even, he even gives them a great compliment in saying, you're hanging in there, you're growing. But again, there's this warning, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into, again, sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is willing. This reference to Jezebel goes back to the Old Testament. And she was uh, a woman that basically promoted this, this whole idea of being both and. She came into Israel and said, yeah, you can, you can worship Yahweh, but you can also worship Baal as well. Baal is this kind of nature and fertility god. That Balaam, what we were talking about earlier, Baal is the god and Am just means the people of God. So it's basically the same folks. Now, here's the whole point that's being made here. You can't worship two gods. That's essentially what's what's being said here. You can't be divided. And by when you sneak into this place where you're you're worshiping God on the one hand, but you're kind of worshiping Baal on the other, that's not worship at all. You're forsaking your first love. You see this theme emerging. And what I want you to see is that in all of these cases, these are churches located in these pluralistic, secular environments where there are so many things competing for the hearts, the ideas, the minds, and the identity of the people. That's the first century world. Does it sound familiar? So much that is trying to say, come this way. If you want to succeed, do this. If you want to feel good, do this. If you want to avoid persecution, do this. Sound familiar? You see, we live in a similar culture that says, do what you want to do. So much competing for our hearts and minds. This is the culture that we live in now. So it's a word that is for us now. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I grew up uh, going to church, and once I reached uh, a certain age, my mom said, hey, uh, you don't have to go to church anymore. And so I took her up on that invitation because at that point in my life, I found Seahawk Sundays a lot more interesting than church. And so I, I quit going, but I would go just enough to maintain my status as a good person. I had this perception that, hey, uh, good people go to church, so I want to be a good person, so I'm going to go to church. Well, uh, as I, I moved over from uh, the thriving metropolis of Port Angeles to start at the University of Washington here in 1994, there were two things that happened to me that were pretty formative. One is I joined a fraternity. And living in the house provided me some opportunities with my newfound freedom uh, from my parents to try out things that I would have never imagined doing when I was at home. Things that I like to call garden variety fraternal hedonism. Now, many of you 
know what, what I'm talking about this. Sometimes I did it consciously. Sometimes I did it more unconsciously out of this, you know, whole idea of groupthink or mob mentality. Okay. And, and there were a lot of, there were a lot of different directions that I went that first year and a half. But the other thing that I can tell you about my experience in the fraternity was that I came out of it with the best friends that, that one could imagine having. And in fact, they're still some of my closest friends today. So even, even as I was being pushed to and fro and was, was so divided in the way that I was thinking about myself and my faith, there was something still really great that was happening there. Okay, so the first thing that happened was I joined a fraternity. The second thing that happened was I, I stumbled upon this place called the Inn. Actually, I ended up here after a girl broke up with me and uh, this, other, uh, this other girl had pity on me and was like, hey, you should, you should come to the Inn. And I was desperate for anything at that point. So, <laughs> so I came to the Inn around about the middle of fall quarter my freshman year, heartbroken. And... I started to hear, though I had grown up in the church, I had never heard about a relationship with Jesus. And through coming to the inn and getting connected to the congregation here at UPC, I started hearing about this relationship with Jesus. This relationship with Jesus. And all of a sudden, I found, I found myself you know, here on Tuesdays listening to this, this great thing about this, this love-filled relationship with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, I found it, it becoming harder and harder to uh, ignore some of my behaviors on Thursday and Friday in my garden variety fraternal hedonism. I was beginning to understand this love that God had for me. And perhaps I was beginning to understand what I was looking for in a first love. And so it was round about the middle of my sophomore year that I began asking this question of, if I'm going to say that I believe this, if this, is, if this love is true, then perhaps I need to make this my first love and allow it to inform all the decisions that I make, whether it is Tuesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. As I made that commitment, the invitations to said hedonism did not go away. The temptation to want to do, kind of have my little both and world did not immediately go away. But I stayed at the University of Washington. I stayed at the fraternity. I stayed in this secular pluralist environment. And it turned out to be one of the most pivotal, fun, rewarding experiences of my life being a student here at the University of Washington as one living in a fraternity, that in the midst of all of that, I still met Jesus. I still saw God at work. There was something about that environment that allowed the gospel message to come through in a way that I could hear it, in in a way that I could see it. And so these messages from, to these churches, to these four churches and three more that you're going to hear about next week, come into a situation that is much like ours. And says, the gospel is for this situation. It's not an easy situation for you to be in. 
but it's where the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to matter. And that's an important message if you are here investigating the faith. You should be asking the question, does the gospel matter for my life today? That's a fair question for you to ask. And if you are are one seeking to grow in your love and commitment to Jesus, you should be asking the same question and be committed to seeing how God works in that. This message, these messages to these churches is for a culture like ours. So what do we do with that? What do we do to make this message practical? If this is a message for us now, what do we do? First, I want to point this out. I have two reflections here. This is the first one. The refrain of this is, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, last week, I talked about look and look and look again. Now we are told to listen. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, but how? How do I hear the voice of God? What is it that I'm, that I'm listening for? Last week I said that if you don't use your imagination, you will always have a small view of God. This week what I want to tell you is without a small group of people in your life, you will not be able to hear the voice of God. If you want to take this word seriously, if you want to hear, find a small group. Sign up for a core group. Be in a place where you can engage the story of Scripture, where there are a group of people that want to know you, that want to encourage you, that want to pray for you, that are going to tell you who you are, that are going to remind you who you are. If you want to have ears that hear, Put those ears in community and read scripture and listen and pray together. Let us be people that have those ears. You have an opportunity to do that even in this place and even tonight. Second, as I said, take these messages are like the angel bringing a mirror to these communities. Take a look in this mirror. Because the angel is saying, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are someone that is in a tough, tough position. You have a lot competing for your attention. There's a lot of different things being thrown at you. And you're doing so much of it well. Look at who you really are and do not forsake your first love. It is important for us to look and look again, to receive this message and look in the mirror that we might change our perspective because perhaps when you're brushing your teeth tonight, perhaps when you get up tomorrow morning, I want you to look in the mirror and do so in a way that perhaps you haven't done before where you look and you see exactly what God is after. What God is after is you. 
God is after you right where you are. In whatever situation you're in, with whatever it, it is that might be going on in your life, God holds this mirror up to the churches and says, I know that this is what ha- what's happening. But I want you. I want you. So let us be people who listen as people seeking the truth. And then let us look into the mirror. Look into the mirror to see how the gospel matters. And look into the mirror to be reminded that Jesus died for the one that you see in that mirror. Let us pray. Lord, give us those ears that hear. Help us to hear what your Spirit is saying to us. Lord, help us to find community. Help us to be people that do not forsake our first love. Help us to fall more in love with you. Lord, may we know your presence as we go about this night and in this quarter. We thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.